I just plugged those plugs in randomly. You did it Very right. confident in my assertion. So I'm I'm 76 percent done. I'm up to graduation day. That's just oh, that's a nice challenge. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I, like, of course. Because <laughs> no. well, that's, Ra- that's Raquel's like okay. moment. Is it louder? I don't know. Um, it's louder okay. Oh, this is when she comes back. To, so when Howard Stern is interviewing a musician, yeah. he'll play a song and be like, do you remember this one? Wait, <laughs> 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 I went and saw Harrison Ford at the new school. Remember, he used to have those, uh, they used to have those like inside the actor studios. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And he couldn't remember a single scene that he was in. <laughs> and oh, so, he's got so many. And so, and so the guy would say, hey. Uh, is it James me- Lipton? Yeah, it was James Lipton. Yeah. James Lipton would say something and Harrison Ford wouldn't know. Like, what do they call the dog? And no one would know. And the whole crowd would say, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So. He wait. Harrison Ford is a TV show coming 1899? out. Eighteen ninety nine. Oh no, nineteen twenty three. Oh, it's a, it's no, no, another one. There's another one. There's yeah. another one. You're right. He, there was a, there was just a G. He has something on Apple coming out on Apple TV. Look that up. Harrison. And he has another Indiana Jones, which yeah. nobody asked for. I'll, I'll watch it. It's called Shrinking. Of course, I'm gonna watch. Oh, it's with Jason Segel. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. Why is it called Shrinking? I have some guesses. No, come on. Oh, he's, he's aging. It's about he's, mental health, I think, right? Like a shrink. Oh, uh, that right? makes a lot of sense. Oh, that'd be a good show I have to say, my mic feels super awkward. What do you guys think? Is it? It's like leaning. Which way? I am a, ca- I am a Karen. <laughs> I was getting called. I was going to say, talk to the manager. I'm not a food snob, but mic's on. So they so speaking of commuting, they opened the Grand Central Thank you, Long Island Railroad into Grand Central opened this week. That's awesome. Yeah, but, I, but it seems like it's not a big time savings. From, how's, how's that for here? So Chris just took it. Chris just took it in from roughly near where I live. Right. He's like, this is amazing. I took the eight thirty eight train and it's nine forty, and I'm in New York. I'm like, wait, that doesn't that doesn't sound great. So our commute is one hour door to door. One hour door to door. I looked at it today. I never seemed to what look. But door to door. Well, I'm sorry. Train to door. How about Everybody that? lies about train that. to door. It's not the same thing. Yes, it is, dude. We live four minutes from the train station. <laughs> Depending on where you park. <laughs> red light. Everybody okay. lies about traffic. No, okay. Train right. to office. Train to door was an hour. Josh and I live f- four to six minutes from the train station, so that doesn't count. Okay. Um, so you get on the train. Yeah. So I make a eight sixteen. It's the shortest train. It's direct from my town to Penn. There's no stops. That's money. 40 minutes. That's money. Okay. You just missed that because of daycare, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So 816, I get to Penn at 9. It's 20 minutes to get from Penn here. So that's about an hour. But that's the best possible circumstance. You're embellishing by 25%. It's 15 minutes, but fine. 15 minutes from Penn to yeah, here? Yeah, it's 15. It's not 20. Oh, I stopped to get food. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but it's true. But, but you, you know what? Your, quali- your quality of life goes up when you go through Grand Central. Well, that's a fact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The so, thing is, you're, you're four miles on the ground. So just to get out of it, the, 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 the escalator is three miles long. No, right. it's, it's, it's 90 seconds. They, they said it's 90 seconds. Can I also say, not just your quality of life, but specifically, the quality of the people that you're rubbing elbows with improves markedly. The few times that I've taken Metro North, like there are gentlemen in suits like with newspapers, Long Island is animals. It's like a zoo on wheels, this train. And uh, when you get the pen, it's like arriving at the end of the world. Like now they've renovated pen, so it's not quite as much of a hellhole. Now it's a hellhole with high ceilings. But it's Do they still-, still have those bottlenecks where you like 
All right. So my favorite bottleneck in Penn Station um, is where New Jersey Transit Ooh. comes down one hallway and, and Long Island Railroad comes down another hallway and they meet in a place that I like to call the Springsteen Joel Corridor. <laughs> So, <laughs> so it's Billy Joel fans colliding with Springsteen fans. Is it like Braveheart in the in, almost, when they all the two armies yeah. are coming at each other? No, it's better to say it's like the Scottish allied with the Irish in Braveheart. We're the same, but we hate so, each other. Right. So right. So Long Island is East Jersey, right? So that Springsteen Joel bottleneck is something else. Uh, not although not post pandemic. No, but the high works Penn Station looks nice. It's when you get out of Penn Station that's where the zombies are. Penn Station was significantly worse pre the construction. Now there's no stores. So here's what I'm worried about. On the concourse, Long Island Railroad, they used to have 20 stores lining it. And one was more disgusting than the next. There was Enrique Caruso Pizza. There was- There's a Tim Hortons there, wasn't there? There was. There were about- Well, Roses is coming back. Roses is coming back. They're going to open it again. What was the store they put in? Not the Dwayne Reed, but the- there was a, was it a Walmart? No, wasn't a it Walmart. was Dwayne. No, it's Dwayne There's Reed. There's still a Dwayne Reed. Yeah, it's Dwayne Oh, Reed. is it Kmart? No. There, no, 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 no way. There no, was no Kmart. Yes, there was. No, no, no there wasn't. wasn't. Google this there shit right not. now. There's, There's a right. Kmart right, in Penn Station. There was not. Yeah, maybe in 1997. It was, at, it was in the basement of one Penn Plaza. It was right on the concourse. No, 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 no. Three years ago. No. I'll no. bet you a million dollars. No. I'll bet you... I'll bet you all of the Bitcoin you own right there now. There was not. There was not. Do you really want K- to do this? You want to do this with Kmart, me? Kmart, Penn Station. Okay, you're right. Okay. But this was like in 1995 it opened. Girl. It happened. <laughs> this was three years ago. It says it opened in 1995. I don't care when it opened. I'm telling no, you when dude, I had look, to look through it. This location. My friend, that had a ba- that Kmart had a basement. Uh, and you would have to walk th- past the Kmart and if, and if, it doesn't matter. I'm looking at it the photos been, above been, ground. It should have been closed by a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so, so it, no, literally it was there three years ago. I'm not exaggerating. Okay. I'm not Move making on. this up. Um, I don't, why am I talking about any of this? All right. How are we doing, fellas? So anyway, uh, we got Visa after the close. Who do we got after the close? Nathan is never moving to Long Island after this discussion. <laughs> Every time I go, I end up in traffic hell. So. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. That's it. what we're known for. That's our, that's our number have, two export after the, yeah, sesame bagels. We have the best pro, best uh, traffic. Yes, but there's still a Benz, right, somewhere in Long Island. Oh, plenty of Benz. Wait, I'm lagging. What's the, we had one in Westchester. It lasted about a year. Benz is good. Benz is great. I hate, no, Benz is not good. Benz it's is great. trash. No, it's like nah, hits the it's spot, terrific. dude. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. It's so lame. Wait, what do you get from Benz? Uh, matzo ball soup. Oh, okay, they've got matzo ball soup. Yeah. yeah. So what's your problem? So what's your problem? <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're, they're turkey's dry. It's just it's lame. It's not Wheatley, good. Uh, Ben's in Wheatley Plaza. No, not good. The worst. All right. All right. We're disagree. <laughs> no, because my dad brings that over. Uh, all it's just it's not good. I grew up at that place. Terrible, horrible place. Uh, well, it's all relative. Listen, I mean, it's not like uh, I'm, a, I'm a Ben's guy. Dude, Are you? Yeah, I think it's great. You would you would go there? That you think that's better than Lido? No. Okay. I just think it's good. Uh, so Chevron did a $75 billion, authorized a $75 billion stock buyback. That's a lot of billions. Is that the biggest one ever? Probably not, but like authorization for an energy company. Maybe for, yeah, it's for, it's not for Apple, right? Like, yeah. I will tell you what I think is significant about that. What was Chevron's market cap? Yeah. When was it $75 billion? <laughs> when was it like five billion? years ago? Because they should have just LBO'd the whole thing then. Yeah. They uh, should have uh, funding secured that bitch. Wait, I'll tell you exactly when. All right, Chevron's market cap today is three hundred fifty billion. 
And what was it at the bottom? It might be the biggest percentage, right? To market cap. Ha- got it. Yeah. You know, they, Chevron got, got the boot. It's not in the Dow anymore. Perfect timing. Right? Chevron got kicked out. In November of 2020, Chevron's market cap was $87 billion. They just authorized, oh, excuse me, it was $184 billion. So this would have been like almost, uh, I'm not great at math. This would have been more than a third of the whole market That's cap. That's crazy. By the way, I just checked myself because I didn't sound right. Chevron is still in. It's the only one. And Exxon got the boot. Exxon got out. Yeah. Is Traveler still in there? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that should go. Travelers? It's a really small company. Wait, what do they need? They need to put Alphabet in, don't they? Yeah. No, wait. Didn't Travelers did get removed? Hang on. Let's see. Um, And Alphabet did the Wait, I thought Travelers got replaced by Salesforce years ago. Hang on. Travelers. No. No, Intel got replaced by Salesforce. Uh, Travis Dow stock. It is. Don't it. is it? Don't you work for Dow Jones? I do, but we don't own we don't own the index. Ah, uh, that's right. Dow Jones uh, components. Looking good. Coming in. Coming in. Three claps. Oh uh, yeah, Zero. that second clap is the one though. Travelers is still in. Nathan is correct. That is that is on the hot seat. What are we? Seventy-eight. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show... It's TCAF. The Compound and Friends is brought to you by Futureproof. Duncan, you going to be there? I'm definitely being there. Sub- I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. You're definitely okay. Duncan is definitely being there. Me too. It's September 10th through September 13th. It's in Huntington Beach, California. I can pretty much guarantee the weather will be good. I'll be there. Duncan will be there. Duncan is still laughing from that brain fart of his. The whole crew will be there. Everyone that you know will be there. You should be there. Uh, if you want to purchase tickets, get an early start. You go to Futureproof. If you want to learn more about what we're going to be doing differently in 2023, join myself and Ben Carlson on a Twitter space with Matt Middleton and John Swalls from Advisor Circle. talking all about Futureproof. Futureproof.advisorcircle.com. We will see you there. Compound and friends, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, oh, can I share this? Last week's episode was the number eight investing podcast episode of the week on Apple. Who was good, our right? guest? Uh, we had Cali? We had, oh, Doug no, we Phil. had Doug and uh, Phil Huber. We're going to beat that. I, how could we not? Yeah. Wait till you see what I titled this episode. I don't even I, know. I'm going to say Jews control the media, <laughs> and we're going to be number five. Wait, hang on. Uh, Travelers, $45 billion. It's tiny. Tiny, right? Get it out. It shouldn't be in the doubt. Get it out. Uh, so we were the number uh, eight. And then overall business podcasts, which is a bigger category. What were we, Duncan? 20? Uh, yeah, we're often in the 20s on there. Who was in front of us on the investing channel? Do we know? Nothing. Nothing. We're going to be, I predicted long Ramsey ago. and Norman? We will be number one. Uh, no, we won't. Doug Ramsey. After today, you're number yeah. one. What's his name? Doug? Doug. Dave. 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 Dave, Dave, Dave Ramsey. Dave, Dave, Dave. Dave Ramsey. We're coming for you, Dave. You're thinking of, you're thinking of Doug, Doug you, Bonaparte. If you're listening to this, you've had a great run. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Uh, a little bit. A little bit not kidding. All right. So this is going to be a really exciting show because we're going to talk about something that we probably should talk about more. 
It's a huge part of the stock market and the economy. But Michael and I uh, have a lot to learn. And this weekend, did you read the book this weekend too? I'm seven. I'm going to jump to chapter 19, 76% of the way done. Okay. First book I've read in a while, by the way. You added my bear market, so thank you. Yeah, Michael stopped reading because- yeah. It's going to be a good year, right? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> this is what happens. What, one book a week? Isn't that what people are doing now? Yeah, right. You used to read, I was. You used to read five books a yeah, week. Yeah, I really was. What happens is you start having kids and it's unconscionable. And you start doing four podcasts a week. And, no, uh, but if you if you imagine having two Can kids, you include the children's books in the count? Dude, no. I, for me, it's not about the kids. It's about the podcasts. So for me, it was when my kids started to become people and not babies, it seemed unconscionable to me to lay on a couch and read a book while my kids are growing up next to me. So I just stopped. And I started reading like five books a year down from maybe, I don't know, 20. And I can't get back into reading as much as I used to. But I read your book. And uh, that's what that's why I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, anyway, we have a special guest today. His name is Nathan Vardy. Nathan, say hello to the folks. It's great to be on the podcast, guys. All right, great to have you. Um, you are the managing editor for Enterprise at MarketWatch and the author of the book we're talking about, which is called For Blood and Money. Prior to MarketWatch, you spent 22 years at Forbes. Dude, really? Yeah. Tw- I, you could tell I didn't write this intro. Yeah. I knew you were at <laughs> Forbes, but 22 years is a long time. There is uh, an urban myth that I wrote more Forbes cover stories than anyone in history. So, we, Did you overlap with uh, Zweig before he moved to the journal? No. Okay. He left before I showed up. Okay. Um, 22 years is a long time at any publication. I loved it. You must have. It was great. Okay. Uh, and you were covering hedge funds there for a long time. Okay. Yeah, I was responsible for like big money investors. So like hedge funds, private equity, that sort of thing. And uh, it was fun because every day was different. It's like you're an investor. So you're like covering every industry. Like one day you could do oil and one day you can be doing healthcare. And, and so like okay. it wasn't boring. You know? Okay. So what made you want to write a book about drug discovery and so for blood and money, just to give people a, a quick synopsis before we really get into it, it's a biotech company and they happen upon a compound that's kind of orphaned and they make a run um, for a leukemia drug. And we're, we'll talk more about how that came about. But what made you say, because I know how much goes into writing a book, not to brag, author of several books. No, but I know what goes into it. What made you say, I'm going to give a, a year or two of my life to this project? Three. Yeah. Three years? Three. Three. Okay. Yeah. Um, in the period between 2010 and 2020, when I was doing all this coverage of, you know, big investors, the sector that I found most interesting was biotechnology. I, I really kind of thought it was kind of epitomized the market. And it was just like the thing that seemed to be most meaningful to human beings. Like I like Netflix and my streaming services that, you know, arose at that time. It really, I like sitting, sitting watching and Netflix with my family, but this is an industry that can really change people's lives. And I really, and the interplay between the money and the innovation, I thought was really, really fascinating. Um, and then I found this, I stumbled upon this story and uh, like, you need a good story. Like, you know, when I went to the publishing houses with this book and I said, I want to write this book, they're like, why are you writing about these leukemia, like cancer drugs? Like, why don't you write about Humira? Like, there are ads about Humira, right? There aren't ads. Oh, why don't you write about a drug that people have heard of? Yeah. But it's not about the drug. It's about the characters. Exactly. Like Duggan and Rothbaum are... Interesting. Yeah. You, have, and, you have great characters. And two and two of the biggest return investment returns in the history of, of biotech and Wall Street generally are epitomized by this, so, this these two drugs. So 
that's what really attracted me to the, the, the kind of impact for people and patients and like the narrative of it. You talking to Showtime yet? When's the show coming out? <laughs> it should be a good show. Um, I think it could be a good streaming show. Absolutely. Nathan, yeah, yeah. Nathan so can you like kind of sum up uh, the story of of the book? Maybe don't like ruin, you know, the end or whatever, but like just tell people why these characters were so attractive to you to write about and why this drug and um, then we could talk, you know, more about biotechs uh, generally. But what what was it about this story that really uh, turned you on? So first of all, this is the story of two rival cancer drugs that have made a huge difference for patients. And so okay. to me, that's really meaningful and worthy of, of looking into. And then the characters and the sums of money behind this story are extreme. They're not typical. Like one of the characters, uh, you know, Bob Duggan. Um, not a scientist. Not, not a doctor. Not a college graduate. Right. A 70 bagger. Uh, he's a Scientologist, not a scientist. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, he manages one of these drugs, the company that develops one of these drugs, and gets it to patients. He believed in it before – like nobody else had any interest in in what he initially started to do. No one had any interest. During the financial crisis, the company, Pharmacyclics, traded for 57 cents. Yeah. Um, what was the ticker? PCYC. Mm, I, I, I remember that. Biotech people yeah, will remember yeah, that yes. one. Yeah. And um, so, he, you know, and when he takes it over – um, the company is like headed for bankruptcy. So he actually tried to sell a piece of this Imbruvica, this, can this really you know, game-changing cancer drug, to see if someone could finance its development. Nobody he talked to some pharma companies. Nobody was interested. So he ended up lending personally money. And that's how he takes control of the company. He had already taken control at that point. Okay. He'd kicked out essentially the person who founded the company. Yeah. But was that Richard? Richard Miller. Did that, you speak to these people? I did. I did. I did. Um, and... Um, it, you know, a lot of sad stories in there. The people that were responsible for the founding and the innovation. People never... like like Duggan's Duggan's uh, son passed away, which is what ignited his passion to study this. But like yeah. Hamdi, for example, like a lot of these people got really got a raw deal. Um, you know, I think I wanted to show the unvarnished story of how these drugs come to be, and part of it is that it requires a lot of different people to do it. Um, and there are winners and there are people who don't win. And that's just the reality. Of that it. was one of the biggest takeaways for me. Yeah. Like this guy, Duggan. I mean, listen, he put $50 million on the line. Yeah. Right. So he turned it into three and a half. He should, he should have been yeah. one of the winners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, that's how our system works. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, how it yeah. works. No risk, no reward. But, but that was, right. that was probably the most glaring. It's like, it's all about the financiers at the end of the day. Well, isn't like not to get too wonky here, but like capital labor, who usually wins that? You know, yeah. usually capital. And uh, in biotech, it seems even more extreme uh, than like regular technology, where I think there are more winners. Not that there weren't employee winners here; there were. You're not you're not very judgmental in the book, but like, is Duggan a good guy or a bad guy? What do you think? Well, I think if I'm if I'm the CEO who got fired when the stock was at two dollars. And, and I was lost the, all your vested but, options. But, and right. I was the only guy that would have run that piece of shit, frankly, mm -hmm. which is what it was at the time. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, we're getting good results in some of these trials. Get him out of here. Like, so if I'm that guy, I think he's the devil. I don't think he's a good guy. But if I'm a patient who's been cured or, or, or who's had the therapy and it's improved my quality of life, I think he's, I think he's an angel. So there, that that's what made the the book so interesting to me. I agree. And you don't weigh in on, like, all right, here's my villain, here's my hero. You just tell the story and let the reader decide. And I was like going back and forth as I read it. 
I don't think you could read the book and come to the conclusion this guy is anything but uh, a shark. But to Josh's point, like, okay, well, that's true. He might have treated people poorly, like, and he did some really nasty things to the people at the company. But at the end of the day, he there was a lot of luck involved. Um, he he swung for the fences and he he hit it. And he saved a lot of lives. And he didn't screw it up, which, yeah. is, which yeah. it would happen. So you, yeah. With a lot of these drugs, you get one shot to go through all this, you know, clinical trials, you know, regulatory yeah, so thinking. Would you say there are people alive today who are alive because he didn't give up and he kept the money funding this stuff? Yes. Uh, I think that, again, a lot of people contributed to the development of these two drugs. And there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who take these drugs. And to the families of those people yeah. and to them, Duggan yeah. is literally a rock star. Like they want to have their picture taken with them. They want to touch them. Totally got yeah. it, of course. So it really depends on, you know, who you are in this. He's very eccentric too. Very. And Does you have some great scenes of him interacting with scientists and they're like, what the f*** is I feel like doing? I feel like that guy is like an NFL owner. That's like the type of personality that he's got. Yeah, I think I think oh, that's, that's fair. A, that's a that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, but he's he's very passionate about like you know after he he's still in this game. You know he wants to prove that it wasn't a that fight. it wasn't it wasn't luck. Yeah. So he keeps trying. It was, it was a lot of luck. Yeah. Um, Josh and I have been talking about just these eccentric characters and how you just f-ing go for it, like Kalanick and that whole that whole crew. Richard Gonzalez. Uh, let me just I, I put this in the doc. Let me just quote this. So Richard Gonzalez was who he was the CEO of of is. Is of of which company? Astros, AbbVie. AbbVie. One okay. of the biggest so, pharma companies. So that yeah. got spun out of Abbott Labs, just a, a right. gigantic company. Right. So this is how you introduced him. Richard Gonzalez had always been kind of a wild card in the pharmaceutical industry. For years, as he was climbing up the pharmaceutical industry ranks, he had falsely claimed to have received a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Houston and a master's degree in biochemistry from the University of Miami. In fact, he had dropped out of the University of Houston in the early 1970s, spent only four months at Miami. He never earned a degree of any kind. I mean, these are the characters that we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean— there are extreme characters in this story. And you didn't, and Rich, unco- you didn't uncover no, that. No, no. That's Chicago's, like a, no, a well-known thing. Chicago's Crane's business broke that story, but he had been in the industry for years before mm. that had happened. I feel like the biotech people were similar to the crypto people. Just the risk reward or the, the potential reward was so astronomical that it attracts these sort of these sort well, of people. Well, maybe like a long time ago. Now it's more No, no, no I'm, I'm saying, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. Back On the, the trading side? For sure. It's a very speculative market. There's a lot of speculative capital. Um, you know, they're real products. It's not, you know, s- some of these work, right? So maybe- How did the hedge fund guys in the book, um, Ro- Rothbound mm-hmm. and who's the other one? Um, the hedge fund people? Yeah. The, Wayne Rothbound and, and Joe Edelman. Okay. So they're two different funds, but they're friends. They're very close friends. They almost went into business together. Okay. Um, look, Joe- How do they like your treatment of their story? Um. Because they're hedge fund guys, they don't want to. They don't want to be in books. I have to say that Wayne. It took me years to get Wayne Rothbaum to speak to me. He's like a legend in biotech, yeah, uh, and hedge biotech hedge fund investing. Um, he never talks to the media. There's no photo of him on the internet. Uh, very very private, and uh, it really took me a tremendous amount of time to get him to talk to me. He's very suspicious. He's very paranoid. You know, his company Asserta, like he refused to have. Like, you wrote about that that he was right. That he was yeah, he's incredibly. Yeah. He's, only the paranoid survive. Yeah. That yeah. is his take. Uh, when you think about edges and trading, sure. it, make, it makes sense. And um, you know, he was very suspicious. But um, after I got him to talk uh, and I started to have him cooperate with me, I have to say he's been like a real gentleman about it. So like. You know, I don't think he loves everything in the book, but, um, you know, I think he appreciates the amount of time I spent on it. But you wrote it like a journalist, to Josh's point. Like, it, yeah. it was very editorial. Someone even, like, um, 
uh, criticize might be too strong a word, but like I kind of like deal with the Scientology stuff. You know, Scientology plays a role in this story, right? Yeah. And but I, I'm not. First of all, I'm not writing a book about Scientology, but also I'm not like here to like litigate how bad, how good Scientology might be. And oh, so, those people come after you too. <laughs> but you were, you were, yeah. you were. That, that wasn't about that. You weren't no. like uh, trashing or anything. No, but I, but I was try- exactly. But I did try to. But look, I'm reverse engineering how this story happened. Scientology played a role. I tried to show. What well, was the role that Scientology played? In the belief system of the guy, or yeah, yeah, and and, and the fact that he did, you know, his. You know, he the self-help elements of Scientology that he incorporates into his life, he brought into his business decisions and into the company itself, like literally. The corporate culture. The corporate culture, yeah. right. Um, and so it did play a role. And a lot of the employees, you know, weren't happy about it, um, if only because they had to spend time learning some of these ideas. Well, know? no, it's beyond that. Yeah. Think about the personality type and the belief system of somebody who goes to medical school. Does that person believe in aliens? You know what I mean? Like it's it's it. You probably could have. You probably understated. Maybe. The, oh, wait, Duggan the was friction a doc. there. Did he have a medical degree or no? Duggan has no degree. No degree. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. But he did. You know, he is ste- steeped in the writings of L. Ron Hubbard and incorporates them into what he does. Um, another thing though, so I talked like only the paranoid survive. I feel like with biotech specifically, a lot of it is based on the FDA and news and. Uh, so a lot of it, I don't want to say there's more insider information in that than anything I, w- I wouldn't know, but it just seems stands to reason that that's a thing. There was a lot of people that were like followed in the book. Um, or not a lot, but there's, there was an episode of somebody th- who thought it was being yeah, followed. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of paranoia. Yeah. Um, why? Um, well, information is, is important. There, okay. there's, there's also rivalries here, um, and, uh, different companies developing different drugs, a lot of which may look like one another. And so, you know, Knowing more did about, you read, did you read the book about the um, gene editing rivalry? Yeah, what was yeah. that called? Um, it's one of the ones I read. I, I read last summer. The, it was good. The, the, the Walter, Walter Isaacson book is that? No, no, no. 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 Uh, they follow the three companies that they were all rival scientists at first. They were teamed up, and then was this the Moderna one? No, it's like Editas, and uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway, it it turns out that. A lot of times when there's something happening with one company discovering stuff, there are all, all of a sudden there are rivals and everyone ends up working on the same thing at different companies. That happens all the time in biotech. And there, look, it's science. And so there's a public element to science. Like, for example, when, when a company starts a clinical trial, they have to register that in the national database. Anyone could go look at that. And so there are ways to figure out what companies are doing. And people do that all the time to, to try to you know catch up, gain a competitive advantage. Like, so there's a lot of that. There are some other interesting characters in the book and characters just like entities. The New England Journal of Medicine, for example, um, the FDA. Right. Like prominent, prominent roles in the development and approval of these drugs. Well, of course. I mean, um, first of all, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine is like the, the most prestigious peer-reviewed uh, journal um, for medical science. And, you know, the FDA is responsible for approving new drugs in America. And so they play an enormous role in the people. The, what is the FDA? It's, I'm part of the Mitt Romney school that it's people, right? So, yeah. so, so they're, they do have processes, but, but the people, uh, at the FDA have an enormous responsibility. Um, and it's really hard to get it right. There's a lot on the line. So you, you quoted somebody, I don't know who, who, who's Pazder. So yeah, Richard Pazder heads the office at the FDA that is responsible for determining which, you know, 
cancer drugs get approved or don't get approved. And he's gone through a very interesting arc in his life, you know, because he used to be known as Dr. No. Uh, it, it was seen that he was really it was really hard to get drugs approved by him and by his office for cancer. Um, and then he kind of went through an evolution in a way. Um, part of it was personal because his wife had cancer, ended up dying from cancer. And I think that um, really impacted him. Um, and, you know, he, he changed o- over the many years that he had that office um, and, and became much more open to finding ways to help industry get cancer drugs to patients for unmet medical needs. So here's a quote that I want you to riff on. He said, in the end, the FDA is in an impossible situation, and I have been in that impossible situation. You are either approving drugs too fast, you are approving drugs too slow. But what we try to do is establish a balance of safety and efficacy. That sounds awfully difficult. It is really hard. It's a really hard balance, and especially when you have desperate patients and desperate well, efficacy families. Efficacy is easy. The safety part is hard. Yeah. That's right. Getting that balance. And there's there's yeah. still a struggle about how to do that. And there, there's always going to be a struggle. There are errors, that. though, where the person heading the FDA is easier and then errors where the person heading the FDA is harder. What would you say is the modern state of the FDA like right now? Um, I think that between 10, 10 and 20— Because with COVID, they were like— well, yeah, could f- do it. Right. Like, and they had to, right. kind of. Okay. Yeah, and, and there was also a sense of urgency at the agency. Right, right. I mean, and, and everyone there was, was and working 24-7. And, yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that, you know, 2010 to 2020, you had a much more lax or, or, or um, accommodating FDA regime. And I think we're now moving partly because of political pressure uh, into an era where it's going to be a little bit harder. Uh, Why? What, what, what political pressure is being asserted that— they would want the FDA to be tougher on efficacy, on on safety, for example, and making sure that the drugs that are being approved is are that safe. A, is that a red red blue thing or not necessarily? Um, I don't. That's a good question. It's not my sense that it's a red blue thing. Actually, okay. I think you know, pharma in a way is one area that everyone kind of agrees to hate. You know, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in 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 American political life, it's like safe to to bash them. There was like a famous poll a few years ago that showed that. Um, Pharma companies had a lower approval rating in the Gallup opinion poll. Most of that is based on drug pricing, though. Yeah, not, drug not, pricing. Not That's right. Approvals. But it, but it, but right then. But this was like, anyways, the Gallup poll was that they had less trust in tobacco companies, which is really crazy <laughs> wow. when you think about it. Um, but um, I think the pricing thing makes people lose faith in the goodwill yeah, of, of what these people are doing. Of course. And so, t- to the pricing, is that why you need guys like uh, like uh, Rothbaum and Duggan to finance these things? Well. It's a we. That's the way our system works, and and you know the Economist um, wrote a really generous review of my book a couple weeks ago, and the reviewer asked a really good question at the end. He, the reviewer is like, "I just read this book with all this testosterone and all this cash-soaked, you know, science going on, and all these sharp elbows." And I'm like, "There's got is there not a better way to develop cancer drugs? Like, there's got to be a better way." How does the rest of the world do it? Well, this is the only way that I'm aware of that works. That doesn't mean that there aren't other ways, but this way we know produces outcomes. You have big drug companies in Japan and Switzerland, but they're all— They're all, all operating in the same— I was going to say, they they're the all same, maniacs also. They're all using the same risk-reward 
analysis right. to, to make but decisions. But isn't AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca and, and they did the same thing. They just, they send money to the United States to, to finance these things. Yeah, well, I mean, these are global companies and a lot of what they do is premised on the U.S. market because we're the richest market. Um, and so- We'll pay the top price for drugs. They, Our government doesn't negotiate drug prices like other governments. It's about to, but yes, that's right. That's they say right. they're about to. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, so where are we today with these companies? Like did, did, uh, did AbbVie overpay? It looked from my seat. It it looks that way. Abvi paid. Abvi bought pharmacyclics. Pharmacyclics. And by the there's no spoilers because I, I, uh, I you can just Google. Well, it. it's not. I don't <laughs> think it's a spoiler. But for this drug, they bought they bought the whole company. Pharmacyclics owned fifty percent of this one drug. Yeah, and, and Johnson and Johnson owned the other fifty. Uh, yeah, yeah. Johnson and Johnson owned the other fifty, and and. Abby paid $21 billion for, for half, a drug. half of a drug. And this was a 50 cent stock, what, seven years before? Yeah. Uh, 10 years before? Seven, eight years before. It was a it was a it was like less than a buck. So this is and one it of went the up to 260. So this is $260. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. This That's is right. one of the biggest grand slams ever. In any industry. In there, any it's, industry. It's really hard. To, the, the, the trade was huge. It made, you know, the Baker Brothers hedge fund, for example, is, it was their big trade. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Duggan was a big winner. Actually, so I, I, I've told this story before, but my mother got into Celgene. Her, her brother was an accountant like, mm -hmm. and was like a do-it-yourself investor and was on the message boards and followed. Um, who's the guy that was in your book? Um, the message board guy. Oh, my God. I'm drawing a black. My uncle used to talk about this guy all the time. He was he was in your you mentioned him in your book. It doesn't matter. It's just a yeah. dude that followed these right. these stocks. Um and so she got into Celgene at like 50 cents split adjusted. And Celgene had a great run. And it got bought out. And that's kind of like from, when you by think, Bristol Myers, like 140 when or whatever. When you think of that 2010-2020 period, we were very focused on fangs and tech as, for good reason, yeah. but biotech Celgene, yeah. that stock did really really well. Yeah. Um and at Forbes we would Every year, like do top five stocks of the year, and every year was about like the so that's stock. that single stock changed my mother's life. So that's Nathan, unbelievable. That what awesome. fifty yeah. cent biotech stock should I buy today? <laughs> I think the, the, the point, the only thing I can help so, you. Do you have to buy the book? Is that the back yeah. of the book? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think I I think the point is that there probably is another pharmacyclics in the biotech wreckage today. You, you know? just want to look for the strangest situation. In a way, you know, I had- like What's the screen for that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I had a short seller uh, message me the other day and he said, you know, uh, Pharmacyclics had every red flag you could possibly yeah. imagine. Yeah. I would have shorted that. And a lot Starting of- Starting with the guy that controlled it. Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of, there were a lot of short sellers actually. They had a, they had a guy who was a urologist as the CEO. Like everything looked wrong. Right, everything. Um, and if you were to put these things in tweet form and done a thread as an activist short seller- you would have said this is a zero, and there were there were there were a lot of there were short funds that were very short. I the guess company. that's why that's why they got to play the game. They got uh, killed. So, so some of your hedge fund characters in the book sold too early, yeah. or should have had a lot more. And I guess like that's from an investing standpoint, that's the part that most affected me. Like, oh man, this guy was there, and then he started taking risk off, and he knew it was the right you know stock to be in, but just didn't own enough. Um, was that an interesting aspect of the story to you? Huge. Um, so Joe Edelman, yeah. I don't know if you know this, was the top performing hedge fund manager in the world between 1999 and, 20, and 2020. That's, that's crazy it, yeah. because nobody knows his name. No one knows his name. But he, he had a 29% annualized return. And like, you know, Tepper had some bad years Wait, there. Wait, for 20 years? For 20 years. Holy shit. Yeah, I know. Because biotech was- You could only do that in biotech and getting them right. It seems, it seems that, 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, or unless you were a quant, right? That yeah. not, I'm not including. I'm not including Medallion or, okay. or in that. Um, and so, and Joe calls his hedge fund firm Perceptive, and his view is that the psychology is is more important actually than anything else, or it's, it's as important. So it's great to know the science and all that, but the psychology knowing when to hold them and when to fold yeah, them. Yeah, is he, and and that's why he called his hedge fund Perceptive. And and he told me that this is the hardest thing as an investor is to when you when you buy something early. And it, and then you sell it, and then it keeps going up. Going back and buying oh, it no, again can't do it. is so buying hard. Yeah, and that's the problem that Wayne and he had in this story. It, Wayne just couldn't do it. He like in other words, it. the stock went from two to six, right? And he started selling. Yeah, and then the and then the the the, the trial results started to surprise people, and you. I think you even say this. He's like, I, he knew he should have bought more, but didn't. He couldn't bring himself to go back into the stock. And how much higher was it? It's like 10? 10 or oh 8. Oh, my God. You know, or 10. Yeah, no, he just couldn't do it. It goes up to 260 in the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has to sit there watching his Bloomberg's machine, you know, watching and that he, happen. And he was on to this thing before anyone else. He understood the science before anyone else. And, you know, it's not just the trials. Like, you would hear, like, rumors, like, from doctors and, yeah. you know, this thing's – the results are good. Um, but he kept, like, poking holes in it. Like, oh, you know, it's early – um, because you know, a lot of these go to zero. So if it's you, a binary if, thing, right? If you're a veteran in this game, you've had stocks go to zero. So of course you sit there poking holes in it. Yeah, but Wayne, Wayne's an interesting character because um, he really believes that, like he 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 will bet everything on one stock. Like th that's what he'll do. Like he just believes Crazy. that's the only way. Highly concentrated bets. His view is like if I'm going to spend all this time understanding the science, all this time understanding a situation. Like if I'm going to just make it's like kind of like a Stan Druckenmiller way of, of looking. if I know I'm right, then why do I want to own seventy different stocks? Exactly. Like if I know I have the one, yeah, I, I get. But that's like a personality type. Yes, you don't end up being a biotech hedge fund manager because you're afraid of risk. No, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like it's a little, it's a little bit self-selecting. It is, it is. But this is even off the charts, yeah, in my yeah. opinion. Even, but um, in this case, he just couldn't bring himself to go back in, and he ends up starting a whole other company and developing a whole other drug in a way to make up for this. That was easier than going back and buying the stock that he'd already sold. So you have like really learned a lot about the industry as a result of covering it as a journalist and then writing a book on it and talking to all these players that are involved. I know you probably have journalistic reasons why you can't own individual stocks. I do not own individual No, I understand. Do you ever get tempted to be like, I feel like I could do that? Like, I'm I feel like I could do I, I, this. I'm humbled watching it. So okay. no, absolutely not. Right. I, I could not. I don't have the stomach for it. Yeah, and I don't I, either. So. Yeah, I, I could not do it. And, um, you know, I'm an index person as a result. It's let's a let's talk Let's talk biotech now. You've said that biotech has stealthily been a leading market indicator um, talk a little bit about what you mean by that. So I don't know if you guys feel this way, but um, it had been so long since we had a bear market. I think everyone kind of forgot the rules in a way. Yeah. And, and um, the biotech stock market started to fall apart in August of 2021, which was early. Um, and I don't know, around September, October, I had a biotech investing source call me up and we were talking and this person said, you know, look out. You know, this. I said, what do you mean? He's like, biotech's always a leading indicator because it's the most speculative part of the market, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's risk appetite writ large. And sure enough, you know, the NASDAQ, three, four months later, that starts. And then three, four months later, you know, the S&P the starts. So um, 
I think that it's imp- even if you're not engaged in the sector itself, it's um, it's it's good to look at. And then you know, if you look at the last two years, uh, oh, sorry, and if you look at uh, the the previous period that we talked about, 2010 to 2020, biotech outperformed. And it, it was a great year for it was a great decade for stocks. And even still, biotech. We were talking about fangs all so the th- time. This is you, yeah. uh, IBB, which is. So the IBB is very heavily weighted toward the top 10 biotechs, but whatever. It's still the index. Uh, returned 351% in the 10 years ending December 31st, 2019. That compares to 343% for the NASDAQ and 257% return for the S&P. The top hedge fund manager of this period um, Joe was, Edelman. was Joe Edelman. That's crazy. It's not, it's not the Tiger Not cops. Cohen, not Druck, yeah. not Tepper. Right. Um, not Red Holtz. Biotech took the lead on innovation from Big Pharma. 400 drugs were approved in this period. Um, and, you know, pharmacyclics obviously being part of that story. So this was a legitimate biotech boom that took place in that 10-year span. Golden age. Golden age. It was the golden age of biotech investing. Okay. Uh, for sure. So where are we now? So, we, had this char- we had this chart, the second data point that you want to show. This is it. This is it right here. Right. So tell us what we're looking at. Well, that's so the first circle. That's when the biotech stock market starts to fall yeah, yeah, apart. And you see, it takes a while more before the Nasdaq hits its peak. The purple is the IVB. So it yeah. was like a, no, was like a canary in the coal oh, mine. Totally. Hey, uh, Nathan, would you look at? Do you look at? Uh, XBI or IBB or both? I like IBB because it's it's. I worry with that. The other one is like a little more small, cappy. IBB are the giants. Yeah, yeah. So I think and like at the end of the day, these aren't fangs, right? They're not that big. So so. By I, the way, the, stock, the chart looks pretty. The chart looks good. There's a. I agree. The chart looks very good. Yeah. By the way, the name I was looking for before is Feuerstein. Adam Feuerstein. Oh, Adam. Okay. Yeah. 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 But he, he is. Uh, he's, he's at Stat. Yeah, he's a I know stat. Adam. Yeah, Adam's Adam's a. He's not a chat room guy. He's no. a f-ing journalist. I, I was thinking of I was thinking of a chat <laughs> That's room. Why I, got I, was, confused. I was thinking of a chat room guy. That's Adam, my bad. Adam, Adam, we love you. Uh, I'm fr- I'm friendly with that guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So so today, there's some structural reasons why the golden age is over. So and there's a Fed angle. to Wait, this. tell me why? Because I I I literally might buy IBB. Like it looks good. So um, <laughs> I'm sure you could trade it for ten points. I think he's. I think. Can you? I think can Nathan's thinking right a little bit bigger. No, I'm a long term. I'm, I'm a long term trader. God, when I look at it now, <laughs> what it's telling me is that things are going to be harder this decade than they were last decade. Okay. And if you look at the reasons why for biotech decade, what about tomorrow? You can see that in other industries as well. Um, again, leading indicator in my opinion. So the Fed, that's one big reason. Um, speculative- Why? Because just less less money available. The free money era is over. Speculative capital being pulled out of the market. And, you know, that's what we saw here in that. So we know that. But there are also these structural- Wait, I would, I'm sorry. Just yeah. don't question on this. Yeah. So obviously interest rates affect investor enthusiasm and willingness to throw money around. But when you're funding biotechs where it's like a 70X or bust, does a 4% risk-free rate really matter? Um, I think- I, I mean, it's also the tightening, right? So I, just, I don't just think it's- It affects exits. Mm. You have companies paying lower multiples, just generally speaking, when they buy one of these things out. And most of these, if it's a good news, it ends with a, with a buyout. So that's right. That's, that's right. That's Pharma what, comes in and buys it out. Right? So then that will, ri- that will ripple outward from there or, or trickle down even at the startup level. Like what is the terminal value of this you know, drug to 
an acquirer, yeah, yeah, it's going to be less. Yeah. Also, I th- like, is Tiger Global going to make as many investments in startups? Just less money. Yeah. Okay, that one's obvious. Okay, so what that's else? Obvious. Okay, so now then there are other like regulatory and political obstacles. Um, so just to bore you for a second, accelerated approval, very important program to get drugs approved fast uh, with a lot less rigor. Um, the two drugs that I write about in this book were both approved through accelerated because approval. there is no current solution on the market that they're trying to displace. It's truly desperate patients. You're meeting unmet medical needs with a right. little bit less data, but the data looks good. And then you promise the FDA, I'm going to go back and I'm going to I'm going to do all, all the testing. Well, the, now the the FDA is saying, well, you know, what's the track record on those accelerated approval drugs? Is it worse than no, no, for all drugs? No, no, it's it's good. It's okay. it's good. Um, I don't want to imply at all that if it's an accelerated approval, it's less than. Right. Um, um, but the FDA is now saying, wait a second, we're, we're doing. They seem to be saying we're less willing to uh, approve um, drugs through this program. Last year, we only had about ten drugs approved through that program, which is not a lot. Um, you have the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, so now the government's going to be. Um, negotiating for the most expensive uh, drugs that are covered by Medicare. So by definition, that's going to diminish the amount, the value of those drugs. It's also going to complicate the regulatory chess game that the companies play because uh, the clock ticks once you get approved. So for example, in my book, the drugs are first approved in a pretty small indication. The clock would technically start to tick then. So now those companies may not want to do that anymore. So that it's going to change the way governments, uh, g- companies approach. Can't that be reversed though? Like mean? if DeSantis comes in in two years, can he just be like, no, actually, we want the drug companies to make as much money as possible because it's we, America. It's a legislative and, thing. So, so right. Yeah. So. Also, what if Nancy Pelosi decides to buy IBB? Yeah. <laughs> then there's, another, there's another component to that. Just thinking out so, loud. No, no, I, nothing's I, permanent, right? Yeah. But, I, but, I, but so, which is a, actually, that's a good point, right? Like these things can change. Um, you have other things like Project Optimus that the FDA is doing where they're saying, well, the way you, you dose drugs in clinical trials, it's going to be a lot harder than it used to be. Um, so these are like all sorts of um, regulatory and political things that are – that are, believe me, the pharma people are worried about. Then on a structural level, you got inflation, so everything's more expensive. Your right. clinical trials are more generally. Every expense every, – every, right? The other thing is that the pharma companies have said, okay, we're tired of these biotech companies taking the lead of innovation. We're going to start funding our own – pipelines. So those buyouts that you're talking about are also going to be harder to come by. Everyone in biotech now knows when they talk to a BD person in pharma that the first thing that BD person is going to say is, I got to check my internal pipeline before I talk to you about anything because we might be developing one of these for all I know. Um, So you might say, well, what does that have to do with other industries? But I see that in other industries too. Like what was, let's look at this week. What was some of the news? Um, The DOJ sued Google for antitrust. Lena Khan at the FTC is trying to block the Activision merger. Uh, non-competes, they want to get rid of them. Um, I'm not talking about the merits of these things, including some of these regulatory things. Just the fact that but they, they exist, exist yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think you have these headwinds that really weren't there as much between 2010 and 2020. To me, that makes it a hard – it doesn't mean good drugs don't get funded. It doesn't mean good tech doesn't get developed. It doesn't mean there isn't awesome science because there is. It just – it seems to me – it's going to be a little Quick harder. tangent. No, hold on, hold on. Before you, I hear yeah. you on the headwinds, yeah. but the chart looks very good. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick, quick tangent. You know what? Forget everything I said. <laughs> the lines between what is biotech and what is pharmaceutical have been blurred partially by acquisitions in right. the space. Um, broadly speaking, pharmaceuticals are chemistry based and biotech is protein based. 
Is that too simple? Could you give us a better explanation? I did. I did go to medical school um, briefly to pick somebody up for the airport. Um, but can you like kind of give us a better definition between those two things? My definition is that uh, a biotech company is small, smaller. It can be developing as little. But that, is that still true? Yeah. Like Amgen is pretty big. Well, Amgen is a big biotech. Dowstock. Dowstock. Okay. Just yeah. generally. But, and they were but, tiny pharmaceuticals. Specialty pharma. Well, but they're not. I'm going to give you another chance. Yeah. No, me, no. Get, that do, is, do better this no, time. No, that is what I'm telling you. It's, it's, okay. it's, to me, it's a difference it's size. between size and um, a diversity of pr- products. Um, you, you don't have biotech companies with like a lot of legacy drugs, generic drugs. They, they don't do that. So, to, so the, the idea with biotech from – Genentech was the first biotech company out in, in California. And the idea was like you could – instead of like when you bet on a pharmaceutical company, even if they get – a new drug approved, it's not going to make that big a difference because this is such a huge, you know, portfolio. Right. But but with a with a company like Pharmacyclics, it it's can a, make it. It's, it's so swing it, for the so fences. it changed the way these things could be financed. Okay. So I really look at it more as a financing thing. I I called my book for blood and money. I think money plays an enormous role in all of this, and and that's really the lens that I'm looking through this industry. So scientifically, then there's not a lot of space between whatever Bristol Myers is doing versus, you know, a prominent biotech. It's just a question of size and scale. Yeah, and, and also, but also processes like, um, you know, traditionally pharmaceutical companies like huge bureaucracies doing anything was very difficult. They would do things like sequentially, you know, first we do this, then we do that. The biotech companies had were much more nimble. They could do things okay. in tandem. So that was a big difference. But look, you know, Pfizer now, look, Pfizer's a great example. Like in the 2010 to 2020, what was Pfizer doing? Big mergers, tax arbitrages. Yeah. Uh, that's what they, buying companies after drugs were developed uh, or at a very late stage, you know, then sick, you know, de-risking the drug and then sicking your massive sales force on it. Um, and now they've changed. They, they want to be innovators, right? They, they, they divested their veterinary business. They divested their consumer products business. They divested um, uh, their generics They're business. getting into crypto. They're yeah. getting into crypto. Exactly. So, so, so the pharma companies want to do it their way. You have a great quote here, a couple um, from Bob Duggan. There was never a scarcity of money or ideas. There was only a scarcity of confidence in the ideas. The key to building confidence is to do whatever you say you are going to do and not promise to do what you can't accomplish. He's a confidence man. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, he's a confidence man. He believes that confidence is like the root of. I feel like his type of guy walks into a room and he's just dripping with charisma. It's funny when I reported this book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. All right. No. All right. But when I reported this book, one of the things I found most interesting was the biotech people. When he first comes on the scene, are like, "Who is this guy? Yeah, he doesn't know anything. He he's not you know he's not a scientist. Is he sort of the Trump of biotech? Sure." Um, but the investing communities, particularly here in New York, they were they were like, this guy's a winner. We're really interested in him. Because he had right, already so, made so not the several Trump. fortunes. He was a track in record in business, right? Right. right. Cookies, uh, computer right, networking. He wasn't wearing a white lab coat, but he makes money. Right. And I think New York responds to that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. For sure, right? We like Trump, right? Uh, a lot of counties here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not right. Manhattan, no, but right. yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about hedge funds. You spent a lot of time covering the largest asset management firms and, and hedge funds last year was not a great year for hedge funds, but it was a great year for certain hedge funds. Um, but collectively hedge funds generated 22.4 billion in profit. No, 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 no
Oh, stuff. that's the top twenty. So the top, so the Giants, the Citadels, the 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 Bridgewaters and Renaissances of the world, the top twenty hedge funds after fees collected twenty two billion dollars outside of the Giants. Um, and this is from Bloomberg. Outside of the Giants, hedge funds overall lost $208 billion. And on top was Citadel, which got the last laugh. And, and they they cleaned up in 21 as well, and 20. So it's not like they were ever in trouble against the meme guys. Um, so Nathan, what's going on? Well, Citadel is not really even a hedge fund no, no, but, anymore. No, no, no. But this, no, 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 no. <laughs> right? Like, but this was the hedge fund. This was not the market making operation. Under, understood. Um, without but, if going you, but if you own the market maker, yeah, yeah, fair, it's, fair. it's really hard to lose. If you own the house, it doesn't matter if you set it up as a separate fund. Um, what do you, what do you think is happening here? I think that like year years have, has culminated to last year. Like if, the, the, this is we're now in the era of big institutionalized hedge funds. The, the day of two guys in a Bloomberg is over. Um, it's really hard to start your own. Like I think Dan Loeb today would have a hard time starting his own hedge fund. He'd probably be sitting in a pod in Millennium or something because. Because that's what the economics— Working on his pitch book at night. Aren't there parallels between the hedge fund industry and the biotech industry? Like where it was in the 90s versus where it is today, much more institutionalized? Um, I don't think so because the, reg- the regulatory bar on biotech was always high. Um, I think it was much easier to start a hedge fund in the 90s than it is to like yeah, develop even, a drug Even like 2005, 2006, if like you were friendly with the Clintons <laughs> right. or married one of their— Kids, like you could just start, like, oh, I'm starting a hedge fund, and uh, get cap intro, and get walked through the room at Goldman Sachs. Well, Hillary's husband, business. Then Hillary's husband literally lost a ton of money. Now Hillary's, I'm husband. sorry, Chelsea's. I'm sorry, Chelsea's Chelsea. husband, <laughs> Bill. No, it's just like Chelsea's a, husband. It's like a putz that met her in college, and then like a month later, Lloyd Blankfein is like white gloving him into a room, and you know, it's like, oh, this is Bill Clinton's son-in-law. So, Line up here to give this guy a check to bet on Greek sovereign bonds. Like that was a thing. Hey, speaking of that, can't do that was now. there was there ever a scandal at the FDA where they were trying to like grease the politicians or not? You know, the people that work for the FDA to get approval. Who the the hedge funds? You would think that yeah, that someone would have done that. Someone would have done that. Yeah, I don't know of one. So no one's gotten caught yet. Not. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> That's right. the sequel. I, I look. Um, I do think there are a lot of dedicated professionals at the FDA. I think that'd be really hard to do, and they have institutional processes and so forth. I think you know insider trading. That's you know that's a one-off maybe, but I think to actually corrupt the system would be a lot. You talk about uh, the the multi-manager funds, though. To yeah. me, are the really big story because these are the giant funds, and they have a lot of different groups within the fund doing all sorts of different things. That's what Citadel like, is. It's a big that's mul- right, a millenni- yeah. millennium. And um, it's work. It's like working very well. It is working. All the talent's there. And, yeah. um, you know, you know, Bridgewater's not a multi-manager fund, but huge, right. f- huge firm. Um, D. Shaw, you know, same thing. And like, what's interesting about Bridgewater and D. Shaw, we saw last year with Bridgewater is you have, you know, this is, these are institutionalized firms where they've, you know, I once talked to Lee Cooperman and he was like, who is what's Omega? I'm Omega. Yeah. There's nothing else. That, that, yeah, yeah. But those days are ending, right? Like we had the biggest. It's an arms race, but it's an arms race, maybe for data, but really for talent. Talent. But how about this? Of yeah. the top, say, fifteen returners, none of them, all of them were incepted before basically 1990. I mean, with the exception of uh, Viking. Yeah, well, because it takes years yeah. to 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 get to that. And you got to you got to compound, right? It takes a long time. Um, Some uh, of the numbers in terms of like net gain. There's a column uh, net gain since launch are just astounding. Yeah, Citadel sixty six billion dollars, Bridgewater fifty eight, <sighs> Eshaw fifty two. These are net gains. But remember, the, that's from a big base, right? So that's 
not necessarily the returns. That percent, that's just like the the amount of money that they. Yeah, if you started thirty and you generate sixty six, it's impressive. It's still, yeah. it's still but it's still you just, just the, yeah. a, a billion the scale. It is the scale's huge, and you know what I was trying to say before is we have like a leadership transition at Bridgewater. Like they've they, they've really so you wrote changed. About, you over. wrote about this last. You you profiled Bridgewater last year, right? Yeah. What are your big take? Uh, Greg Jensen's the guy now. He's the guy. People are extremely impressed by him. I've seen him speak publicly. Probably on YouTube or he whatever. He was incredible on on Oddbots or Masters of Business. I would give that. I would give that guy really money. He, he called. He really Bridgewater and him, they really like understood this inflation thing a lot. How long early. had he been there before getting it, the the seat? His whole career. His whole career. And he was demoted. So he's it, a Dalio guy. Yeah, I actually heard Dalio's coming back. Did you hear that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Where to Red Hole Twelve? <laughs> Dalio's coming back to Bridgewater. One down yet, and I'm only teasing. Uh, so so what's like? What's your big takeaway from Bridgewater? Uh, from from looking at the the firm that they've really transitioned away from Ray and they're now going to be an institutional firm that's going to be here for a long long time. Okay, and these things didn't happen. It's before. so hard to do it, that. But now what it's didn't happen before? These transitions never happen. You know, even oh, because what you said about Cooperman, like he is Omega. Yeah, right? he never even thought about trans- historically. You know, the right. guy would either go family office or die, right? or or yeah. blow up spectacularly. That too, right? <laughs> but those were your two options. Yeah, right, and. You know, even when I talked to Greg in October, he's like, look, Ray gave up the final vote. Like, he had the final say on everything. Yeah. And now he doesn't, and he gave that up voluntarily, and that's a really hard thing to do. But he did it, and, you know, I think you're going to continue. The same thing happened to D.E. Shaw. You know, David Shaw gave up. There's now, like, a committee that runs that firm. Yeah. And it's going to be very hard for the smaller hedge funds, in my opinion, to compete against these large firms, you know, on a regular basis. And the other thing I'll say about this list, which – I, I think I, I shot you guys a, a note about this. When I look at this list, what really jumps out at me is Appaloosa. Like, amid, amid everything I just told you, here's Tepper yet again. Yeah. He, he's he's just two guys in a Bloomberg having a good year. Yeah. Uh, the guy's extraordinary. He's extraordinary. He's extraordinary. He's the goat. Is he the goat? He is in my book. Yeah. yeah. For a lot of reasons. I like stuff how I like what I like about David is how simple. Like, you know, when I when he speaks. And he analyzes things. I'm like, why? Why didn't I see it that way? Like, that, that's really such a Dude, easy He'll come way on CNBC. They'll, like, do this huge buildup, like, the macro outlook from David Tepper. And he'll be like, look, it is what it is. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, it really is what it is. Like, but he's – he doesn't – he doesn't dress up his opinions in, like, flowery language. I, I, think, I think the guy's extraordinary. I saw him speak at SALT. Maybe 2015. Mm-hmm. I was so blown away, not just by what he said, which wasn't much, but the reaction to him in the room. And the whole room is filled with would-be Teppers. Uh, I did a blog post. I called it the apotheosis of David Tepper. <laughs> it was like right after he had truly kicked down the door and become the goat. And it was just amazing watching people genuflect and the reaction when he walked into like the bar, the room, whatever. Um, so I, I think I kind of agree with you. Um, maybe who, who else would be if not like who who else? Simons. I, well, I, well, yes. The obvious choice would be Soros, Simons, Icon, Druck. Didn't but, Druck have zero down quarters in twenty? I guess you're right. You're saying goat. You're saying ever, right? So yeah. But even no, Tepper couldn't save the Panthers. That's right. true. Not yet. I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't bet against him doing it. I though. Guess, I guess the argument would be that this got harder as the years went on. Of course. You know, when it was a, you know not that many people doing it, maybe it was a little easier. Well, you know what else got made it hard when it, when growth was the only thing working and undervalued stocks didn't work. Right. So right. Uh, the Tiger Cubs were in the FT this week, and probably wish they weren't. Uh, they'll be fine. 
Um, but it was 2022 was really bad for this type of fund where it's basically an all in bet on growth. And then let, Hey, let's throw some venture capital into, uh, so let me just read this and I want to hear your reaction to it. Um, Tiger Global, uh, Chase Coleman, uh, has now dropped out of the list. This is like the top hedge funds, uh, after an $18 billion aggregate loss from its main hedge fund, it's long only, and it's crossover investment. The crossover is where they also bought, you know, made investments in private companies. And then they just like run through the list. Viking, uh, um, what what are some of the other ones? But wait, but even though Tiger- Light Street got- Light Street, KOTU, uh, Maverick. Like the poster child. He was also, they were also the pioneers. They were doing this. They were in, weren't they in Facebook? Like they, they wait, were- Wait, let me get, let me get to the, the punchline. FT Alphaville's very rough back of the envelope calculation indicates that this means the famous Tiger Cubs probably lost investors about $60 billion last year. This is all of them together. To put that in perspective, that means the Tiger Cubs accounted for over a quarter of our estimate for the global hedge fund industry's overall $208 billion loss in 2022. So- that's like a lot of money to lose if you call yourself a hedge fund whoa, 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 in the whoa, aggregate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The, the run-up was spectacular. Agree. So even though the downfall was pretty disastrous in terms of the dollar amounts, like they had an incredible decade-long run. Yeah, I know. It's, it's true. Um, they built enormous businesses. Uh, I mean, the run was celebrated. Yeah. There, were, there were articles that were yeah. the absolute yeah. converse of this. Look how For much sure. money these guys. Are yeah, doing. you got to call it For out, sure. right? For sure. Um, it's. I find it. Look, Jill, Julian Robertson died last year too, um, and his legendary impact on this business is yeah. is it's impossible to to yeah. encapsulate. Um, but what I find interesting here is a lot of like they're they're going to be fine. Like they're going to be fine. First of all, every yeah. one of those dollars that they lost was lost for an investor right. who can absolutely afford it. <laughs> right, right. That's the game they're playing. The game yeah. they're playing is right. they're managing money for people where that kind of a loss, it may not be acceptable and people might be upset about it. But like all of those clients knew what they were signing up for or should have but known what also, they were signing up for. The, the Qatar investment fund will, will be all right. And they, but they also it's like, hey, guy, I'm not the five percent a year, you know, fund. I'm the fund that feast or famine, hopefully most of the time feast. I mean, how, but true. Oh, there's also a lot of pension funds in there, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. That, but they're and filling endowments. that slot for right. right? Yeah. But they're filling that specific slot for the pension fund. The pension fund doesn't think I that agree. Well, hedging. the point is nobody uh No, nobody. <laughs> there it's it's not like people got ruined by investing in Tiger at the top, right? It's not like an, it's, unless they invested in 2019 or something. And they went all in, which yeah, of course nobody yeah. did. Right, right. Yeah. What I find interesting is um what, what the, to me the big lesson of all this is is that you, you got to get permanent capital if you're one of these guys. Oh, I right? agree. Yeah. And so you saw it with Ackman, which who I think wouldn't exist today if he didn't go out and raise permanent capital. Um, and you see it here too. Like these guys like Tiger Global and Co2, when they were hot, raised so much permanent capital on the venture side um, that the hedge fund business is almost immaterial. It's not, but it's, it's small in comparison to the venture side. Um, so they've built these really terrific businesses and they're, they're going to be okay. Well, what about Einhorn? Like he went from 14 down to a billion. He did not that's, have that, uh, no, no permanent but capital. It's he his. Almost, yeah. It was his probably, right? The yeah. permanent capital is his probably. That, that's right. For the most part. Correct. That's right. Um, so let's just- What run, a great year he had. Incredible. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Let's just run through some charts that I think are important. 
I feel for, bad for Einhorn. They're going to start cutting interest rates, and his whole edge is going to go away again. <laughs> You're going to have to hear about Jelly Donuts again? Yeah. Uh, I didn't really say that. So uh, in terms of the proliferation, I guess, or lack thereof, the, the dearth of capital that's that that was sloshing around that's no longer— Look at so, this shit. So, so this is from Eric Newcomer. He's got a bunch of charts— uh, in what's clearly looking like peak insanity in retrospect, there were more. There were 149 funding rounds in which startups raised $100 million or more in the fourth quarter of 2021. That number fell to, I don't know, what does that look like? Just eyeballing it, 1920? I don't know why I said 1920. Uh, so, so yeah, the money, the money is drawing up. Next chart, please. We're looking at $100 million valuations. Uh, so for points in 2021... The maj- Again, this is Eric Newcomer. The majority of venture deals funded a company with a pre-money valuation in the nine digits. That's a thing of the past with just 19% of raises meeting that same threshold today, down from a peak of 55% in September 2021. So yeah, the the appetite um, for, for fast deals, for big deals, uh, that's behind us, to say the least. Uh, I think it's going to be harder. So this affects, obviously, by- was, this this affects- big, was, this a, was this a bigger bubble in 2000? What do you think? I think yeah. I think yeah. No fucking way. There's more money. Well, hang on, hang on. It's okay, what? I think it's nuanced. And and I wasn't trading. In, in, no fucking way. No, wait, hold on. It's nuanced. I'm, I'm backing. I'm backing. I'm backing up. I'm backing this is my up. My co-host I'm on the show. Backing up. All right. Go ahead. I think the nuance is that in 2000, truly, and I was 15, but truly, it was a national pastime. Like not just for like 12 months, like this recent one was. Not just 2021. It, everybody was trading. Right. Fair. Everybody was trading. And, and it that's was not what went hold on, on. Hold on. It was it, stop. It was just it was just based on complete fantasy. There was no business fundamentals, like nothing, 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 nothing. I think maybe the dollar amount, the size of the bubble, in terms of Zoom having a hundred forty billion dollar market cap, Peloton going to forty billion dollars, like the size of the dollar amounts was probably bigger today. But I think maybe the hysteria in two thousand was more of a fever pitch. I think I there were I'm more. I that. think there were more IPOs. Uh, 2020, 2021 than but, there were but in 99. In 99, like the, the IPOs and doubling on the same day, like that happened every single day. Biotech stocks IPOing and tripling. Like we didn't get that part of it. It's funny. For me, it's like about biases. And like 2000 was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. Are you my age? How old are you? Uh, 48. Okay. I'm 45. So uh, that was my formative experience yeah. was the dot-com. I, and the financial crisis. Right? I, right. I knew nothing at all because, right. I mean, I still don't know anything, but I really knew nothing. That's the first thing that I saw right. in this industry, like ninety eight, ninety nine, and that the also went, that also went on longer. Uh, yeah, it like is. this was this was gone before it started. I think that bubble started at the end of ninety five. Yeah, uh, maybe ninety with the Netscape yeah. IPO. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a good, so that's good, and yeah. that kicked off a five year run. Right. Yeah, the Netscape IPO was probably the the starting gun. You're right about that. And what that. are the Nasdaq do fifty percent a year for five years or something? Right. So, so I thought it was crazier back then. And you're then. calling Druck a goat, right? Again, How hard I did, is it I to did do? It, nuance. I didn't participate, nuance, Michael. but the dollar amounts were bigger now. Yeah, my bias is that I'd never seen anything like that before. And this time I'm like, yeah, I've seen this before. I know what Well, can is. I add crypto to, to this though? Let's. So if I do, then this is definitely Well, bigger. you can say this bubble was stupider. Way stupider. The yeah. SPACs alone. Yeah, I agree. The SPACs alone make this way dumber than taking a flyer on a dot-com IPO. It's funny though, like part of this too is- like proportional, right? So, like, if I look at crypto at its peak, three, it mu- three trillion. Three tri- if that's I Apple. add that to the stock that's bubble, Apple. that's Apple. Yeah, right? that's one company. So, wow. like, I think because there's so much retail involvement, we really like, and you know, people feel like they're missing out. There's a huge emphasis on it, but at the end of the day, from if you look macro, it's pretty small. Wait, let me throw this at you. Yeah. What if 90, 1999 plus a pandemic, like plus work from home? 
That would have been the shit. Plus, plus free trading. That would have been that would have been Robin Hood. That would have been yeah, yeah. the greatest of all. Like no Damn. sports on TV. Plus nineteen ninety nine. Can you go? Can you imagine that Yahoo no. message board? No. no. So I want. We're talking about uh, investing the future. I want to talk about this. I saw on. Uh, I saw on the intranet. John, can we throw up this video? Do we have this? So Nvidia just released a new eye contact feature that uses AI to make you look into the camera. Did you guys see this? No. John, if you please. So on the left is what he's actually doing, and on the right is what this technology does. Do we have volume on this? So it's fake eyeballs? How sick is this? So so wait a minute. So the left is what he's actually doing. The right, look. But is this in real time they're correcting yes, this? Yes, yes, So you could be looking at your phone. Oh, that's fucked up. I should do that, because I get yelled at, I get yelled at that I'm always looking down at my laptop from on TV. Could not, How's, I'm, I'm not trying to be anti-AI second week in a row, but I see some eyeball jitter there going on. It looks cartoonish. Dude, the eyeballs no on this big of a screen, maybe not on a phone. You would never notice. On a phone, Look, look what he's noticed. doing right now. He's looking at his phone, and it looks like he's looking straight at the screen. That's pretty, that's pretty insane. Okay. Wild. So machine learning, AI, whatever the hell this is, could that, could that play a role in biotech? Like, could that help discover chemical machine combinations learning. quicker? Yeah, yeah there's, there's a, it's a, a lot of people are very excited about that. Um, and I think that would be really amazing if, 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 if that worked. Um, and the, the thing that would be most exciting is if it could, right now most drugs that go into clinical trial fail. The vast majority of them. That's part part of why the risk reward here is so hard, and why it so, makes it so expensive to develop drugs. So I think it would be great if we could like narrow that down and make it like I don't know one in every five drugs or something like that. And if 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 AI can help, AI approaches could help identify the right targets. Um, then that could be really you know. There's a lot of people who are, who are trying to do that. Um, it's four eight, and stocks just ripped into the close. This market, I don't know what's happening, but stocks do not want to go. Hey, down. I wanted to run this by you guys. This is in Barron's roundtable. Um, do you, you ever read like uh, you ever read rival public? You read Barron's at all? I'm, I'm part of Barron's. Oh, you are? Yeah. In what way? Well, market watching oh, Barron's or sister yeah. companies. Okay. So I thought this was interesting. Um, Abby Joseph Cohen had a take on active versus passive. That to me seemed a little bit disconnected from the reality, but I want to hear what you guys think. So she picks T Row Price as one of her stocks, like like it's the roundtable. So they're like saying what their favorite stocks are for the year, and this is what she said: We are entering a period when good active management of portfolios is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. After an extended time in which the market was momentum driven, mm -hmm. okay. People invested in market cap weighted index oriented strategies such as ETFs, which became self fulfilling prophecies True. until they didn't. This approach led to a high concentration in the indices of a small number of stocks, which grew overvalued. A handful of good active managers were left by the wayside. Okay, nothing we haven't heard before. This is how she finishes that thought Quote, Last year, valuation nerds had their day, not just in fixed income, but also in equities. True. This trend isn't over because we haven't seen the full unwinding yet of investor interest in ETFs, end quote. Unwind? There will never be an unwind. Has she seen can the you, can, can you imagine the full unwind of The ETFs? full unwind. What would that look like? $7 trillion so this, out of an asset this class? Is, this is the analogy I used this week. ETFs are Netflix and mutual funds are blockbuster. There will be no unwind. Well, that's my point. Has she seen the flows data? It's one direction. The, last year was a shitty year for stocks and bonds. And the money did not stop pouring into ETFs. So when is this full unwind that she describes? I also would like to know, okay, so is T. Right, Price so now, a good, good manager? So go I mean, ahead. How do you figure that out? Let's, let's go ahead, what? No, she, actually, yes. Uh, she had a stat 
what percentage of their funds and maybe this was they they cherry picked the shit out of like this. I said the stock looks terrible. Is she recommended T Row the stock? Yeah, she's recommending T Row price. Look at the, the stock. stock. Listen, uh, what would JC say about this? This isn't going up. Looks awful. JC would say, "I hope it goes to zero, <laughs> <laughs> bro." Uh, all right, I thought that was interesting. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is, this is still the attitude of many people from traditional Wall Street, where they Old think like school Wall Street ETFs and passive investing. It's like this fad or like this phase that's about to reverse. Uh, how much longer could you carry that belief before they have to carry you out of the room? I guess is, is the question. A, l- a long time. I, I, to me, it's much more interesting to think about, okay, so we have all this passive money. What's the impact of that on this market environment? You right. know, and uh, Michael Green, I think, does some really good work on that. Others do too. But that, to me, that is what people should be thinking about. So- it's hard for me to believe that people are going to start wanting wanting to pay high fees again. I'm not to- I'm not totally dismissive of right. the fact that market cap is perhaps doing something to the market, but I think the th- the stat that I keep coming back to is that active um active managers are responsible for 95% of the, the volume. Oh. So this is why they're, two, they're, this is why T-Row price. They're setting prices. It's this, not it's not the index. The notorious AJC But is said, there a point? Where, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, probably. Yeah. I, th- but I think the point might be much higher than we think. The company's T Row Price's mutual funds outperform their benchmark seventy six percent of the time in the past ten years. Amazing! Can that be true? It's past Amazing. performance, right? Why is that stock at its fifty two week low? Well, because people don't people. Ooh, this looks terrible. Uh, trading for thirteen times earnings, dividend yield four point three percent. Yeah, I'd rather be a buy than sell. Maybe they should cut the dividend and start hiring some good stock pickers. Um, uh, no, that, it sounds like they have great stuff. By the way, does, all, all Intel does is miss earnings like every single time. Why are the analysts not catching down to this? Just it's down 6% splat. Wait, I'm not finished. I want to talk more about me. Uh, I wrote a blog post this week. Chat GPT is everything you wanted Bitcoin to be. Did you read this yet? No. Or did you skip over it? I did not read it yet. All right, that's good. I'm well, when did I, you write this? Yesterday. I'm glad I put it in the... All right, my calendar was busy. All right, let me just make my point that I wanted to make. And then I want to hear what you guys think. Um, nobody yelled at me about this and I'm not on Twitter. Maybe I didn't see it. I didn't get anything on LinkedIn or email. Maybe nobody cares. No, a lot of people Wait, read your, it. Your post wasn't blowing up. No, nobody was mad at me. No, no, no. Nobody was mad at me. This is my point. While Bitcoin relies on instant millionaire daydreams of traders or the belief of its Twitter based cult, the actual function of AI chatbots will continue to proliferate without there being a need for endless conference panels and tweet thread defenses on social media. It just works. No theorizing, no pumping necessary. It's accessible in a way that Bitcoin as a payment system never was. Any child or technologically unsophisticated adult can make use of it on first contact. Not in Venezuela, not in the future, here and now. I I 97% agree with you. This is a a great take. Hold on. Morgan Housel texted me. He's like, dude, these two realtors I know, they just had their, their all of their marketing materials and their entire website was written by ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. He's like, this thing is two months old, and there are realtors harnessing it. He's like, you're a hundred percent right. So the only thing I would quibble with is Bitcoin relies, yes, on on a cult, but it's also relies more on the blockchain than the cult. No, how about it doesn't fucking do anything after yeah, fifteen there's, years? There's less utility. Agreed. Yeah. No Agreed. zero. Agreed. Yeah. It it the the ChatGPT thing. It came out of nowhere. Microsoft invested in this company, uh, OpenAI, in 2019. So it's two years, three years ago, they gave them money. 
Now there's a product on the market that literally a six-year-old can use so effectively. There, a company That's I spoke, what they want is Bitcoin A, a company I spoke to yesterday, I, I didn't tell you about this yet, is using OpenAI uh, to help our industry. And it is pretty exciting. 100%. Like it's, pre it's pretty sweet. So, so I, I guess the point is like, if you want to talk about revolutionary technology, for me, this is what it looks like. Like my kids coming home and using chat GPT because somebody in school told them about it that day, not to cheat, but to just like better organize what they're trying to learn. That's pretty cool. It's like shit. legal. And they're not doing it because they're trying to, they're trying to make a quick buck. You know, they're, they're literally yeah, using it. It's not it. speculation. Yeah. They're no. actually using it right. to improve their, people are using it. Uh, there was a professor. It's like HGH, but it doesn't make your head 10 sizes too big. This is the Wall Street Journal. They have a professor who's using it to teach his students yeah. not to learn how to cheat. Um, last to help month, them. Right. Last month, a professor at Weber State University in Utah asked the new artificial intelligence chatbot to write a tweet in his voice. Um, perfectly captured his tone. Holy cow, he said. And now there's a debate. Should educators be banning chat GPT or building on it? And obviously this professor, the story is that he wants his students to learn how to use it because this is where the world is Because you going. can't fight it. If right. you're gonna, it's like Damn finger it. in the dike, right? Right. Yeah, you can't you can't fight it. Okay. So, uh, is there as and big I, a— And also, it's, it's, it's only going to get better. Right. Like— so Right. If this is the version that's been released after two months— Think about what V2 looks like. It's like unfathomable. Is there as much concern amongst writers and journalists, do you think, as I think there is about just uh, AI— driven content in general or not really? I, I, I don't think there, I haven't felt it, um, but there probably should be. Um, and I think it's going to be ubiquitous throughout industries um, you have as a click, they get reshaped. You ever click on an article on Yahoo Finance and realize like two paragraphs in- That it was oh, written by a computer. This is a computerized yeah. article. Yeah. Um, that's pre-chat GPT. Right. Those articles are going to get better, I right. think. I, I still feel like you're saying chat GPT. I can't say it. What like if you <laughs> so were, it doesn't roll off the tongue. If you were an editor and you had a and you had a news organization that most of their traffic was coming from tickers on Yahoo Finance, and there are a lot of them out there, um, let's say seeking out like mm -hmm. like no disrespect, right? Wouldn't if you were the editor, wouldn't you say like write me an article in the style of Adam Feuerstein <laughs> about this phase three trial that was just announced from Pfizer or whatever? And like you could probably get a decently written article. I'm going to defend Adam here. I don't, I don't think I'm, he could. He doesn't need to be defended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam's the man. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying, like, if you were an editor right. trying to got it bring in a lot of content at a low cost, you would be doing that. I, I think if you're running a content farm, like for sure, right? That is seems like a much like there's this thing. Simply go. Wall Street. There, like every ticker you search on Yahoo, there'll be a Simply Wall Street article. It's a hundred percent a computer. Right. I don't even well, – it might be a computer editing the computer, right? <laughs> um, right? There's nothing there. It's just stats put into paragraph form. There's going to be more of that and it's going to be better. Yeah, totally great. That's what I'm trying to say. Before – I totally agree. Before we get to our favorites and wrap it up, I just want to say one thing. Oh, wait. Thing. Nicole. Slack Nicole. What? I have a treat. All right. Um, I'll actually – no, I want to say two things. I'm doing a Twitter spaces with Ben Carlson and some of the guys from Advisor Circle on Wednesday at 3 o'clock to talk about Future Proof. Okay. Um, but what I really want to say is last week when the market was down because bad news is bad news, I mentioned something that Chris Sidiel did about market structure and you sort of like 
poo-pooed it. Like it wasn't- a, I did? Yeah, you did. You, okay. you can run it back. You totally did. I'm like that. And so the market is up a lot since then. Um, what do you got for Nicole? Putting that over here. Keep talking. Um, dude, JC texted me about this. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So JC just texted me. Uh, yo, let me know if you like those tequila seltzers, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Wait, what was your point about Chris Sale? Okay. Is he mad at me? No, 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 no. Okay. Not at all. Not at all. But my point is, the market is so strong. I'm not sure why. Eric Jackson just tweeted, Microsoft, which tanked the market yesterday morning, especially tech stocks because of their cautious cloud guidance, was up 3% today and is upset more than 7% since 948 a.m. yesterday. Why is the stock market so strong right now? The S&P was up 1.1% today. It's January. Oh, okay. All right. Let's uh, let's have some tequila. We could, we could go home. Let's have some tequila. You know what time? Is there not seasonal strength for stocks in a typical year? Last year being an obvious uh, Oh, it's January. Oh, okay. All right. So that's it. It's January. Well, you heard it here first. It's January. Don't people put money to work in January? Oh, it's that Am easy. I making that up? Okay. All right. I didn't know that so, was- All uh, right. So wait. So I don't know. I'm asking. You tell me it's January. So like is, you fucking know. Is this a bear market rally? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What Completely. You, you know why? I don't- I, 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 the I, earnings are okay. They're not that bad. Not like that Microsoft's bad. earnings were not bad. They, Guid the, guidance wasn't great. Guidance was cautious. Oh, here's, here, how about this? Be? How about this? The market does not believe corporations' guidance. The market is saying, I call bullshit. You can say <laughs> what you want. I don't believe you. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. I think funny. the market is looking past whatever soft guidance. I don't know what to, how to explain this. Is this just, is this, is it, listen, in 30 days from now, if we're down 10%, was it all just a dream? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just asking. I don't know why the market's so strong right now. I don't Nathan, did you have fun on the show today? Was there everything I cannot wait be? to come back, but I, okay. I want my book on that shelf back there. there 100%. 100%. Nathan Vardy, ladies and gentlemen. Nathan, that was great. Thanks, thanks for having right, so me, what, what are we drinking? Well, so we're going to do favorites. And while we do favorites, so JC invested in this thing called Casaterra. Actually, he said, let, he said, let me know if I should invest. Tequila with natural flavors and sparkling water. It's 7% alcohol by volume. We it's got pretty strong. We got three flavors. I like the box. Oh, wait. What flavor did I pick? Oh, That's strawberry? I don't know if you want. It's grapefruit. Oh, I like what? grapefruit. What is this? You like what else grapefruit. you got? Lime? <laughs> I like strawberry. <laughs> All right, so we're going to decide lime if, if JC right. should invest. Are you guys going to shotgun these? Give me a K. Which one, did, which one are you doing? There's a lime. So these are ice cold. We had them in the fridge. Oh, it's good for the beach. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good? It definitely plays. All right, I want to invest. You want in? Uh, valuation is uh, seventy five. I just texted JC. It tastes good. I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. I'll start. So last week, I went to a comedy show, and I saw Shane Gillis. How is it? Uh, lime is not for me. Okay. <laughs> Shane Gillis no, was hilarious. So you I know. Do you like a stand up guy? Uh, stand up comics. You know this guy, Shane Gillis? No, I don't. Okay. okay. He was. I didn't know who it was either. I was crying. Like, absolutely howling. And uh, he's just, so, whatever. If you're, uh, you want to check him out on YouTube, he was, he was incredibly funny. Um, the other thing, uh, Stephen A., who has been my guy forever. I liked Stephen A. before. It was week. cool to like Stephen A. Like, long, like at least 20 years ago. Uh, was on Howard this week. and uh, He's was, promoting a book, too, right? Yeah, he wrote a book called Straight Shooter. I had to compete against him yeah. and Prince Harry, <laughs> who, whose book came out the same day as mine. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I don't think your reader... Yeah, <laughs> also reading Prince Harry. I know someone's buying the Prince Harry. Everyone seems to, like, mathematically, the whole nation's Can buying it. Can I tell you, yeah. I think the f***ing Illuminati are buying this book to make it seem like people care about the royals. I think there's a conspiracy. No, it's, not the, it's it. the skulls. By the way, and also- Nobody's and buying also, this book. There's and also, like a million copies. For blood so and money. I don't know. Where are these copies? <laughs> these copies are underneath the palace. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't. And my third favorite is for blood and money. Thank you for putting a bottom in my bear market reading. The low is in. Thank you. Great book. Yeah, well man. done. Really, Congrats. really, truly a, a great book. Fun read. Cheers, Learned guys. a lot. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Thanks. Strawberry cheers, is better than lime for the yeah. record. Yeah, strawberry is good. Better than lime. I think it needed a little bit of sweetness and you don't get that from lime. Actually, I'm opening grapefruit just so I could confirm. Okay. Whether or not you guys, you guys want to, uh, well, maybe, maybe. Are you, how old are you? <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, all right, Nathan, you got a favorite for us? What do you got? I this is a, a little um, New Yorkery, but um, there, there was an article this week about uh, what's the matter with men. Um, that was a, the Gross. take on a That's book. The, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I I thought it was really good. Well done. What's it, the TLDR? Well, to me, it's like there's this issue with the participation rate at, where there are fewer men in the workforce every year, and um, I don't know. Like it's really. Opioids, no one knows why. Opioids, yeah. video games. We kind of we, we kind of know, know why, why but yeah. it's uncomfortable, right? It's sad. Yeah. Uh, it's not. There's no. There's and there's nothing like saying like this is about to turn itself around. No, it gets worse every year. You know, more uh, women than men graduate college now. Oh yeah. And s there are some aspects of the collegiate experience that are not suited to like men naturally. Am I saying? Like, how canceled am I going to get? Uh, maybe I shouldn't go any deeper on this. Uh, but Thank I, you for listening. No, but a lot of the jobs, the high-paying jobs, have gone to people with college degrees. And many, many men are not going to college. Like, these are the facts. And I think that plays a big role and in it. And many are not working. Well, when you turn 27 and you can't afford to live and you can't afford to start a family, what do you f***ing do with yourself? Like, a anecdotally. Yeah. You live in Long Island, right? I do. How many men in your fi in their 50s, anecdotally, do you know they're not working? Not a lot. Not a lot? No. In I know their 50s? Yeah. No, most most men I – I might – I don't know. It might be where on Long Island I live. Right. Because if you go out east, like I'm in Nassau County. Right. It's one of the most expensive places on earth to live. So you can't uh, live there if you're not working, basically. It's It would be very hard. Right. There's no real support network in a suburban setting like that. Right. But I think if I went further out east, there's meth. Like, it's it's different, right. for sure. And then you get to the Hamptons, and then it reverses. Um, but why? What, what's but it doesn't have to that? be meth. It, it, like, it, it could just be people dropping out for various reasons from the workforce. And anecdotally, I see it. You know, not I a lot, that, but I, I see think, it. I think, uh, sadly, I think, like, the, um, the decline of the unions has played a really big role from sure. what I've read. I know nothing about that world because I'm only – uh, 45 and you know, that's like the 60s, 70s, but that really is the time that people said like, that's when, uh, America was America because there was no question that you would be able to have a family and live and provide. And right. that is now a question for a lot of people. And so do they have any potential solutions for this. I think we're like at the, how do we diagnose the problem? Okay. Figure out what it is. Who wrote this piece? I don't know. I'd never heard of him before. Uh, but was it was it Chat GPT? It was here. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I read it. It was it was it was based on a book that's come out on this issue, and I'm kind of you know talks I'm about interested. this all the time. Galloway. This is one of his big Scott Galloway. Yeah, it's one of he's his a smart big, guy. One of his big topics. Um, what does he think about Giant Tech? <laughs> yeah, not a, not a huge fan. Uh, my favorite is Aubrey Plaza. She and what she was great, right? I mean, what yeah. she did in White Lotus was she anchored the show. She was maybe the most relatable character, but then she also still has an edge to her. But you know what else? It, it like it didn't start that way. It like she ramped. Yes, a hundred percent. Anyway, she hosted Saturday Night Live this weekend, and in this day and age, you don't have to watch the show. Every uh, every segment is on YouTube. 
Just go look up Aubrey Plaza Saturday Night Live. She's amazing. She crushed she yeah. every yeah. assignment on the show, starting with they did the Black Lotus, right. and uh, she was hilarious. She uh, she was great in every aspect of hosting the show. But what I really loved about it was she was a page. That the monologue was awesome. The monologue yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah. In 2004, she must have been 20 years old. She was a page at NBC for Saturday Night Live. What do you mean a page? What is that? What is that? The page like program. Guy. The page program is like you wear the blazer with the peacock and you just run around and do errands for people that are on the shows. And do you like guide, I think you guide the tourists too okay. when they come in. You guide the tourists. Uh, she was like, wow. like, like, go fetch me a glass of water. And she said, one day I'm going to be on Saturday. I'm going to host Saturday Night Live or be on Saturday Night Live. And this is 19 years later, and she's the host. I feel like if I had to buy stock in one young actor, not that she's that young. Is she 40? Probably yeah, not even. Close yeah, close to 40. Yeah. yeah, be her. She's great. I I just I just looked at I just looked at like her performance hosting the show. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course she's genius. Yeah, like yeah. She did SNL. She did Weekend Update with uh, what's her name, Amy Poehler, and they were in character from Parks and Rec, which was I think a uh, underappreciated, underappreciated show, way sure. way underappreciated sure. show. Uh, uh, have you seen Ingrid Goes West? Maybe. It was one of her first big movies in 2017. She plays a stalker and she, like like a creepy stalker oh, who no, doesn't know she's that. a stalker and she was incredible. What's <laughs> the movie, the Netflix movie where she's a criminal? Emily the Criminal. Emily that the was Criminal. Great. That, was, that was a lot of fun. Have that, you seen Black Bear? That, no. no, I was going to watch Teed Up the other night. I didn't get to it. It's good? It's, uh, it's worth watching. Is it a film? It's Yeah, it's a film. Okay, I'm out. What's Bla- thought, what is Black Bear about? I thought it might be. I read the review. Is, I she, the main, is she the main character? You it's about a, film? a screenwriter. I don't watch films, only movies. It's worth it's worth a watch. I think you might like it, uh, Josh. Michael, definitely not. Thank you, Duncan. All right. Hey, uh, great job this week, Here guys. it is. Sorry, just put a bow. A filmmaker suffering, so that's why I thought it's a film. A filmmaker suffering from a lack of inspiration retreats to an isolated lake house where she manipulates and controls her host in an attempt to create a work. Oh, controls her host. I do like that. Anyway, that's Black Bear. <laughs> Great job this week, Duncan. Great job, John, uh, Nicole, Sean. Happy one-year anniversary uh, working with us. Uh, To the listeners, thank you guys so much for coming out. Make sure you check out Nathan's book. Uh, What is the name of the book? Tell everybody. For Blood and Money. All right. Where could they buy that? Um, Any local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And where can we read more of your – so I noticed – I was looking up your byline – your writing kind of has dropped off as you're promoting the book. I get it. <laughs> writing uh, and uh, your, promoting your the book article, and having a job. I, I'm supposed articles. to be at work right now, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so where can people find your stuff? Your market, your market watch. Are you columnist, reporter, both? I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of managing more now, yeah, but yeah. I'm still trying to write as well. Okay. And um, you can check out my work You're going to stay on the pharmaceutical biotech beat? Yeah, I'm working on a story right now uh, okay. that I'm pretty excited about. Awesome. Um, All right. So, and follow, you're on twi- uh, Twitter mostly, like your social media? Yeah, or? yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn. What's uh, your Twitter handle? Uh, Nathan Vardy. Okay. At Nathan Vardy on Twitter. Why are you waving? You got some for us? I have a review to read when, oh. when you're done. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm done. Go. Oh, okay. Uh, so, this week we have, first of all, we have 1,400 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which wow. is pretty Dude. good. It's uh, a high bar. Yeah. Guys, and, keep those reviews coming. We read them all. We'd love them. Thank you so much. Yeah, so 87 Illini guy says, who has more fun? It's a treat to listen to people who have so much info to share while laughing and enjoying themselves and their audience. I look forward to every episode. Pro tip, listen to the pod and then watch it on YouTube. Oh, man. That's a hardcore listener. Thank you, Alina. Very cool. Any others? 
No? My mom didn't write that? <laughs> I don't All right. think so. All right. All right. Thanks to Duncan. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it. Make sure you buy Nathan Vardy's book. Buy multiple copies. It also makes a great stocking stuffer this time of year. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks again. We will see you next week. All right. So that's the warm up. I just wanted to get some of the kinks out. And uh, now we're going to start. Yeah. You okay with that? That was a lot of fun, guys.